0: So, um, let me pray for us as we get started here. Lord, speak to us through your word. Let our hearts be receptive. I pray that we would gladly receive the word that you have for us. Take it and, and apply it in our lives that we might be better equipped to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need a Bible, we've got some folks in the back that have one. Uh, Just a paperback Bible that you can take with you if you need one. But uh, just catch their eye if uh, you need a Bible. And we're going to be looking at John chapter 9 this morning. And that is on page 747. So page 747 in these Bibles that we have here for you. I have two daughters. One of them is with us today. The other one's named Stephanie. And when Stephanie was 10 years old, she wanted to try out for a part in the children's theater production of The Wizard of Oz that was happening in Wausau, where we live. Well, Tina, her mom, was away at a women's retreat, so Dad got to take her in for her audition. And we were kind of sitting around watching them audition. And, and, you know, she did... A great job trying out to be a munchkin. So we've got a little picture of Stephanie. She's the one in the circle uh, in her little munchkin outfit. Well, there's a lot of time during auditions when parents just kind of sit around, you know, wondering what to do. And so when the choreographer uh, invited anybody who was interested to come down and learn the steps to, we're off to see the wizard, I nudged a couple other dads, and we went on down and learned those steps. It was kind of a fun little break for us in the midst of what was was fairly a boring day. Um, Now, it wasn't long, though, before someone handed me a script and asked me to read a couple parts so that some kids could read their parts and try out. And then, as the afternoon wore on, Tina finished up at the women's retreat and came back, and she wanted to see how things were going at the auditions. So she came and joined us, and uh, it wasn't long before she had a script in her hand too. Somebody asked her to read Auntie M's part so that a girl trying out for Dorothy could read her part. Well, imagine our surprise when the phone rang that night, (laughs) and the director asked if all three of us would be in the play. And so, there we are. Um, yeah, it was an exciting time. Uh, tin man, Auntie M, and the munchkin that got the whole thing started. Uh, so, next slide shows something you probably didn't know, though. Auntie M and the tin man have a thing going on. <laughs> and, uh, And then uh, one more. You can tell this was a long time ago because the suit is silver and the hair is brown. (laughs) So one brief story. I had a wedding the weekend of the performance. You can go ahead and get that slide off. (laughs) 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 Had a wedding the weekend of the performance and there were performances on Friday and Saturday and Sunday and uh, the rehearsal, the wedding rehearsal was Friday night at 6. I had a performance at 7. And so the, the theater downtown Wausau is like three blocks away from the church where the wedding was going to take place. You know what's coming? You, you know what's... Yeah. So I, I really had no choice but to do the wedding rehearsal in costume and to to walk from the Grand Theater to this church through the streets of Wausau carrying my little axe and uh, to do the wedding rehearsal in in costume. We still call it the Tin Man Wedding. And uh, to my knowledge, it's the (laughs) only wedding the Tin Man ever performed. (laughs) Well, my time in community theater, get rid of that one too. (laughs) My time in community theater taught me a bit about theater lighting. Uh, all of the lighting at the Grand Theater in Wausau is computerized, so different parts of the stage can be lighted differently at different times. And and at the beginning of a scene, the lights can come up gradually, or they can just be suddenly on. And same thing at the end of a a scene, you can do a slow fade, or it can just be darkness really quickly. And the reason I mention that is that John chapter 9 shows the lights coming up for someone who had been in darkness all of his life. And by the end of the chapter, we see him standing in full light, worshiping at the feet of Jesus. It's an amazing thing as this light comes up on him. But we also see in the same chapter the lights going down for some people who deliberately turned their back on the truth of who Jesus is. There comes a time in each of our lives when we have an eternal decision to make between darkness and light. We choose either to put our trust in Jesus or, or to turn away from him. It's generally the result of a series of decisions about how we're going to respond to the light that God has been offering us. And if you want the sermon in a sentence, it's this, light received brings greater light, and light rejected brings greater darkness. So let's take a look at light received. We look at the the man born blind. When I was in high school, I went on a youth group retreat where I got, all of us got this treatment. We blindfolded for an hour, and someone else led me around. It was kind of an exercise in learning to trust. And I'll tell you, I was ready to be done after about five minutes. You know, five minutes of being in darkness was more than enough for me. Now imagine spending your whole life in darkness. The man born blind here in John chapter 9, and and we're never given a name for him, he's just the man born blind, had never known light until Jesus came into his life. Take a look with me at verses 1 through 5 of John chapter 9. As he went along, that's Jesus, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. The disciples' question here in verse 2 reflects a common belief of that day that all suffering was the direct result of sin. And that's only partially true. All suffering is the result of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. That introduced sin and suffering to the world. But in Jesus' day, people believed that there was a direct link between individual sin and individual suffering in all cases. So they asked the question, who sinned? This guy's blind. Who sinned that he would be blind, him or his parents? And Jesus' answer in verse 3 challenges that thought. It's, It's not because... This man sinned or his parents sinned. That's not why he's blind. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. God wanted to accomplish something through this man and through his blindness. When we experience difficulties ourselves, our problems provide a great opportunity for the work of God to be shown in our lives. James chapter 2 I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 2 says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God has things to accomplish through the struggles we experience. Paul strikes a similar theme in Romans chapter 5, when he says this in verse three, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So God can showcase his power at work in us through those times. He develops things in us through our challenges. The healing that Jesus was about to do would show God's power at work in this man's life. It would also be a sign that Jesus was doing the work of the Father, and it would point to him as the Messiah. Again and again, we come back to this theme in John's Gospel, Who is this man? Who is Jesus? John wants us to see who he is in all his fullness. And so he is the Messiah. Three times in the book of Isaiah, we find that the Messiah would open the eyes of the blind. He is deliberately fulfilling those scriptures. And so Jesus heals the man. He makes some mud out of dirt and spittle. He puts it on the man's eyes Tells him to go and wash, and the man obeys, and for the first time in his life, he is flooded with light. And the rest of the story of this man is a story of increasing light as the light comes up on him. Not physical light, but spiritual light, insight into this one who healed him, this one who came as the light of the world. Light received brings greater light. I see a few stages in the story of this man born blind as his light gradually increases. The starting stage is what I would call innocent ignorance. Uh, look at verses 8 through 12. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I'm the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed. And then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. Innocent ignorance. There's a lot he doesn't know. And his innocent ignorance stands in contrast to the Pharisees as we see them in action in this chapter because their ignorance is deliberate. What did this man know about Jesus? Very little, very little. He knew that Jesus had healed him. He knew that he had been blind, but now he could see, and he knew that was because of Jesus. And he must have wondered at the power of someone who could do that. But at this point, he really knows very little about Jesus. Ignorant ignorant innocence. And that leads to the next stage in the man's story. I would call it dawning light. Dawning light. Look at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? And so they were divided. Dawning light. Look at verse 17. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man said, he is a prophet. The the light is dawning on him. He's moving from innocent ignorance to dawning light. The significance of what has just happened begins to dawn on him. It's, It's natural that he be brought to the Pharisees. They were central in the life of a Jew. And the Pharisees would be able to help the people understand what was going on here. But the man born blind had to figure out the answer to the key question. How could it be? that a man could have the power to do what no one had ever done before, and that is to open the eyes of someone who was born blind. Here in this section, we see the reason behind Jesus making mud and putting it on the man's eyes. Have you ever wondered why he did that? He healed different people in different ways at different times. He healed some people up close without doing anything special like this. He healed some people long distance, like the centurion's servant. Think about the healing in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus comes to a blind man, touches him, and says, can you see now? And the guy says, I, I, I see men as trees walking. And so he touches him again and gives him his full sight. Why two touches there? Why long distance for some? Why up close for others, Why the mud here? In each case, the context tells us why. The context of this one shows that Jesus was setting the Pharisees up. He was intentionally violating their rules about the Sabbath by making mud. Really. The Pharisees had all kinds of rules and regulations trying to build a hedge around the law so that if you didn't violate the hedge... You wouldn't come close to violating the law. So all of these rules and regulations. And so when the law says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, well, they built all kinds of rules and regulations around that, including what would constitute work on the Sabbath. So if you don't violate their rules, you don't violate the Sabbath. So what constitutes work on the Sabbath? Did you know that spitting on the ground was considered work on the Sabbath? The reason is that when you spit on the ground, your spit hits the ground and, and makes a little furrow, and plowing is definitely against the rules on the Sabbath. So Jesus violated their rules, and it tripped up the Pharisees, but it didn't trip up the man born blind. Why is that? It's because he starts not at the point of seeing rules violated, but at the point of seeing God do something powerful in his life. He looks at the healing instead of seeing a Sabbath violation. He sees God at work. He says, it's got to be from God. Where else could it come from? He doesn't have the training the Pharisees have, but he has all he needs, common sense and an open heart, because light received brings greater light. And that leads to the next stage in the man's development. I would call that growing light. Look at verse 24, growing light. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man's a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? "'How did he open your eyes?' He answered, "'I told you already, and you did not listen. "'Why do you want to hear it again? "'Do you want to become his disciples too?' "'Egging them on, huh? "'Then they hurled insults at him and said, "'You are this fellow's disciple. "'We are disciples of Moses. "'We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, "'we don't even know where he comes from.' "'The man answered, "'Now that is remarkable.' You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Growing light. The opposition of the Pharisees only serves to focus the question in this man's mind. Opposition does that. It causes us to see more clearly what the real issues are. That's why the blood of the martyrs has always been the seed of the church. When we face opposition, it causes us to decide what's important, what we're willing to take a stand for. Opposition causes people to count the cost. And in the increasing polarity of this section, we find the Pharisees choosing darkness and the man born blind stepping further into the light. Light received brings greater light until finally in the last stage, we see him standing in full light. Look at verses 35 to 38. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out and when he found him, He said, "'Do you believe in the Son of Man?' "'Who is he, sir?' the man asked. "'Tell me so that I may believe in him.' Jesus said, "'You have now seen him. "'In fact, he is the one speaking with you.' Then the man said, "'Lord, I believe,' and he worshipped him.'" Full light. Jesus seeks the man out, stands in front of him and says, "'Do you believe in the Son of Man?' The man says, who is he? Tell me so I can believe in him. That word believe is the word we get faith from. We also get trust from that word. So what Jesus is asking is, are you willing to put your trust in the Son of Man? And the man born blind says, yes, I am. Just tell me who he is so I can do that. And Jesus says, it's me. I'm standing right in front of you. You've now seen him. With those eyes that never could see anything before, you have now seen him. And the man falls down and worships Jesus. Have you noticed how freely Jesus receives worship? You and I can't do that. If someone were to fall down in front of us and worship us, our response ought to be get up, what are you doing? We see that response in Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas come to this town called Lystra, and uh, they are great orators. They perform miracles, and the people of Lystra fall down and worship them. And Paul says, get up. What are you doing? You don't worship people. You worship only God. And yet here, when the man born blind falls down to worship Jesus... Jesus receives his worship. Why? Because it's appropriate. It's fitting. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God the Son, second person of the eternal Trinity, the eternal Godhead. He's worthy of our worship. It gets back to that theme in John again. Who is this man? He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The man born blind stands at the end of the chapter in full light, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. In light of God's self-disclosure, those who trust him fall down and worship. Light received brings greater light. But now we see the other side of the coin. The Pharisees show it to us. Light rejected brings greater darkness. Let's take a look at this chapter again and glean out a few sections that speak of the Pharisees and their increasing darkness. Let's look at light rejected by looking at the self-assured. The ignorance of the Pharisees, as I mentioned before, isn't ignorant. It's intentional. It's deliberate. Their innocence had been forsaken a long time before. They chose darkness and they lived it out. Look at verse 22. where it says um, they had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. They'd already decided that. They had left their innocence behind. They chose darkness. They lived it out. They called for the parents of the man born blind. They began to interrogate them, to put some pressure on them, and we find that they had already decided to put out of the synagogue anybody who acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah. It was the cancel culture of 2,000 years ago. When do you suppose they decided their position on that? If you flip back just a few pages to chapter 5 and look at verse 16, we see it. It says there, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath... Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The Jews had already decided that they would reject his light And tells us that they were even trying to kill him at that point. They decided to choose darkness instead of light. And their darkness only increases as the chapter goes on. So what do people do when they choose darkness? What do people do when they want to insist on being right, even if it means that they've got to insist that God must be wrong? I find three things uh, in the Pharisees' behavior that people do when they are willing to say, God must be wrong so that I can be right. And the first, I would say, is fault-finding. Verses 14 to 16. says, Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Fault finding, they they searched for fault in Jesus, and they found it in his breach of their own man-made laws about the Sabbath. It's not really surprising that they found it. Jesus set it up for them to find. But in the end, they overlook the truth by clinging to their insistence about being right themselves, and they end up straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce. It's really a good read. It's a novel about a bus trip from hell to heaven. Um, A busload of people condemned to hell goes to heaven... And everybody has opportunity to get off the bus and stay there. Everybody gets off the bus. But one by one, they find a reason to get back on the bus. Because they would rather be damned than to admit that they were wrong and bow the knee to God. When people don't want to admit the truth, they will often find fault in the person who brings it. Light rejected brings greater darkness. The second thing I find the Pharisees doing is what I would call leveraging. We find it in verses 18 to 29. They try to force people into denying the obvious truth about who Jesus is, and they apply whatever leverage they can to do it. So look at at verses 18 to 22. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he's our son, the parents answered. We know that he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. The parents said this, because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Leveraging. They threatened to expel from the synagogue anybody who doesn't agree with them about who Jesus is. We find more leveraging in verse 24. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. What they're saying here, when they say give glory to God, isn't praise God that you've been healed. Uh, The NIV adds, give glory to God by telling the truth, helping us see the, the bigger picture here. What they want to do is pressure this young man into agreeing with them about who Jesus is. But that wasn't the truth, and the man born blind was beginning to see that. Verse 26 shows us a little bit more leveraging. They asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? They're asking him something they've already asked him before. It's kind of like a little bit of cross-examination, hoping to trip him up in his testimony so that they can discredit him And finally, in verse 28, it tells us they hurl insults at him in order to try to leverage him into giving up looking at Jesus as the light of the world. When people don't want to admit the truth, they will often try to leverage others into joining them in suppressing the truth. Light rejected brings greater darkness. We see it in our own culture today this kind of leveraging that goes on. We see it in the news. One more thing I see in the Pharisees. I see them engaging in half-truth in verse 34. In verse 34, they tell the man born blind, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they throw him out. They try to discredit him by hanging on to this half-truth that was exposed in verses 2 and 3 that we looked at earlier. This idea that somebody had to have sinned in order for this man to be blind. And Jesus points out that that's wrong-headed and unscriptural. It's only a traditional belief that all suffering is a result of particular sin. Now, the Bible makes it clear that suffering can be the result of particular sin, that's why it's, it's only a half-truth. It sometimes is that way. Think about Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They lie about what they've given to the church, and God strikes them dead. Or in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper, and he urges us to approach the Lord's Supper carefully, not carelessly, because he says that's why some of you have fallen sick and some have fallen asleep. In other words, have died. Uh, God exercises judgment sometimes for sin, but other times suffering comes to us when we haven't sinned. Think of the case of Job. Innocent man described as as, uh, godly and upright, he suffered. Why? It's a mystery. A mystery that Job found out in the end was too big for him to understand. What's interesting to me in this half-truth that they cling to in verse 34 is that while they're clinging to that, their insult affirms that they know this man was the man who was born blind and Jesus was the person who healed him. Two things they had been trying to deny the whole time. It shows their hypocrisy, their willingness to do anything to avoid admitting that they were wrong. Light rejected brings greater darkness. And by the end of the chapter, their darkness is complete. The lights are out. Look at the end of the chapter, verses 39 to 41. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Jesus is speaking here about people who realize their spiritual blindness. They realize their need for a savior, someone who can open their eyes. And he contrasts them with those who think they can see, who think there's nothing that they need. He's saying that people need to realize their spiritual blindness and turn to him. We need to receive our light from him. In verse 41, he says, in answer to the Pharisees, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. In other words, if you would simply be willing to admit your spiritual blindness, admit your need, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see while you're just as blind as you can be, your guilt remains. So what do we do with this chapter? What do we do with this message? A couple things let me suggest. First, if you've never put your trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, the Bible says you're living in darkness. If you're thinking about blindfolding yourself and that makes you uncomfortable, if that thought just makes you uncomfortable, Think about spending eternity in darkness, cut off from God's light. I want to encourage you to step into the light. Admit your spiritual blindness. Admit your need for a savior. Turn from your sin. Ask for forgiveness. Ask Jesus to heal you and cleanse you and enter your heart and live in you and flood you with light. You can do that before you leave here today. I pray you will. And if you have put your trust in Christ, I want to just challenge you to daily choose light because light received brings greater light. Quick checkup. Do you spend time daily in God's word? Just for yourself, not preparing it for some study that you're doing, just for yourself. God's word is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. We need it daily. Do you take it in daily? Another question I would ask is, do you look forward to being with other Christians in the full light of worshiping Jesus as the man born blind did? We worship him, and it's a wonderful thing when we can worship him together. Does that motivate you? Do you want to step into the light on Sunday morning and and receive more light? Do you like to worship at Jesus' feet? Choose light. Another question I would challenge us all with is this. Is there something going on in your life that you would be ashamed of if it were brought into the light? Reject the darkness. Choose the light. Turn away from those things. And then finally, when someone has the courage to point out something in your life that isn't the way it ought to be, how do you respond to that? Do you receive that light and welcome it, or do you push it away and choose darkness? How we respond when someone holds us accountable says a lot about us. Choose light. Light received brings greater light. Light rejected brings greater darkness. I pray we would be a people who gratefully receive and experience ever-increasing light. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would make us people of light, that you would cause us to welcome the light of your word, to welcome the light of brothers and sisters in Christ who care enough about us to shine light in our lives. Help us to be those who live and walk in the light and experience more and more of it because we do. In Jesus' name, amen.